everyone and welcome to the next edition of our Employment Espresso Pods podcast series. I'm Anna Law, a senior associate in the HSF employment team. In light of the government response to its consultation on sexual harassment in the workplace that was published in July, this podcast is the first in a mini-series that will be exploring how to respond to and most importantly how to prevent sexual harassment and abuse in the workplace. Our experience has shown that this remains a key concern for employers, even during the periods of remote and hybrid working that we've seen over the last 18 months. Like all good coffee shops, in this mini-series, our team will be serving up a variety of topics, ranging from how to respond to historic harassment allegations to dealing with particular issues of confidentiality in such cases. However, today we invite you to share in our discussions about identifying a toxic workplace culture over a cuppa of your choice. Joining me around the virtual coffee table today, we've got Dave Palmer, who's another of our senior associates, and Lydia Carrington, who's currently a trainee working in our team. Good afternoon, Dave and Lydia. Hello. Well, our listeners put the kettle on. Dave, could you please start off by explaining for us what we mean by the term toxic workplace culture? So before we we started recording the podcast, Anna and I and Lydia were trying to work out how we would define a workplace culture um, that is toxic. And it's not the easiest thing to define, but it is is sort of obvious when you see it. But I think what we're referring to is here is a workplace where things are going wrong and there are examples of behaviour which do not fit in with the aspirations of the business and the types of things that you'd see set out in its code of conduct. So you will see examples of things like harassment, abuse and bullying. And those are not things that we want to see in our workplaces. When we came to uh, come up with the idea for these podcasts and, and we, I realised that the first one was going to be on toxic workplace cultures, and it was kind of funny because it was the 20th anniversary of a programme called The Office. So I thought it was maybe a bit timely that we're going to look at this. So I might just throw in a little David Brentism somewhere during my talk just to keep everybody on their toes. Lydia, I think probably you're the best placed person to sort of kick off about indicators of toxic workplace culture. Thanks very much, Dave. So we discussed that toxic workplaces can take many forms and examples of harassment and abuse in the workplace continues to develop alongside our work patterns and practices. So, for example, for some employees, the shift to remote working may have seemed like a silver lining of COVID-19 in providing a chance to enjoy much needed distance from a toxic workplace. However, unfortunately, unpleasant work dynamics can follow employees home and in some cases worsen. For example, distance created by remote working can actually enhance negative behaviours and isolation may aggravate their impact on employees. So we've discussed what are the indicators of toxic workplaces and generally this is measured by the impact of that behaviour on employees. So some obvious signs could include grievances being aired, an increase in employee litigation or customer and client complaints, a high staff turnover and problems being flagged in the exit interviews, staff complaining on social media and poor diversity in the workforce. But there are other signs that are often less obvious. For example, productivity waning for no good reason, Department meetings that feel stifled, workplaces, events that are poorly attended when they happen in person and staff absent rates being higher than expected. It can be difficult to spot that these are symptoms of a toxic workplace. However, a one off instance can sometimes become something that a number of people raise or turn into a recurring issue. 
At this point, employers should question whether there is a cultural issue at play. That's really helpful. So if we're talking about particular instances where allegations are raised by employees that may be related to sexual assault or harassment, or it could be one of the other types of toxicity that we have been talking about. But how would you suggest that employers respond to those sorts of allegations when they arise? I'll maybe answer that. And um, look, it'd be fairly uncommon for an employee to make like an outright allegation that a workplace is toxic. What's more common is that one or more employees raise grievances about the way they've been treated. And commonly, these are accusations that have labels such as bullying, favouritism, and then the harsher ones of harassment and discrimination. The specific allegations obviously need to be addressed via the employer's policies and procedures, for example, the grievance procedures and whistleblowing policies. I guess the tricky part is then that the person dealing with the initial allegations have to realise that there's a systematic problem, the, the toxicity, which needs to be considered and addressed. And at that point, a wider investigation can be carried out and a framework should be put in place so that senior management can be advised of any issues or failings that are identified and then remedial action can be taken. I guess a difficulty can be that large corporations are not always set up in such a way that staff will readily be able to spot and acknowledge the signs of a toxic working environment and then propose steps to remedy the situation. It can be a complex problem. Often it's junior HR professionals who are the first to twig that there might be a pattern of behaviour across a workplace that points to an underlying toxic environment. They then have to raise these concerns with senior HR personnel and then the message needs to be passed on to senior management The problem is that then if there's a fear of blame, which is, of course, another symptom of a toxic working environment, that may prevent senior individuals from accepting that there's a problem and identifying its root cause. In my experience, it does take a really strong manager, especially a senior manager, to admit that a workplace has become toxic under their watch. And I think this is part of the intrinsic problem that's been faced here. And I guess also it could be a reason why sometimes these sorts of issues are identified when new management comes in perhaps more willing and able to to identify issues and willing to take steps to address it. Yeah, excellent point, Anna. And look, investigating wider cultural issues always comes with its own challenges, including how to best investigate, whether a large number of employees should be interviewed, whether to use employee surveys to identify issues, and how to make the process appropriately comprehensive but manageable. These things are difficult. And employers are under increasing scrutiny to do more than simply apologise for workplace culture that they engender now. Evidence of change is needed and ESG is a big thing that's on the agenda. So there is now, I would say, a much more wider willing to put things properly right. Mm. And so what would you say to be the short term and the longer term risks of not acting in these situations, of not quickly and effectively dealing with issues like this. Lydia, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think Dave made a really interesting point about sort of the means by which you investigate such allegations need to be considered before the allegations themselves are raised. So I think all organisations should think about what they might do in a crisis, particularly one that might be played out under the gaze of the media and potentially involve senior leaders. Because often when we're advising clients, we see almost a decision paralysis, given that the crisis scenario hasn't really been worked through in advance and people are ultimately scrambling together for an action plan. So knowing who makes the decisions and in certain cases, what external advisors should be called upon if a senior leader brings the organisation into disrepute is really key. If these aren't considered far enough in advance, 
the worst case scenario can, to put it bluntly, be catastrophic. You know, there have been many examples of companies going bust in the past due to actions of their staff, which went unchecked until a fatal problem arose or a regulatory or law enforcement institution cracked down on it. And such actions do not necessarily need to be unlawful for catastrophic consequences to follow. They're usually a combination of behaviours which are risky, unethical, immoral or inappropriate, particularly in the case of sexual harassment and abuse. Of course, if the staff have acted unlawfully, the risk of a bad outcome is greatly increased. So the legal risks in the short term can be numerous. They can include employee claims of unlawful discrimination, harassment and dismissal in some cases. It can include customer and client complaints and claims investigations by government authorities and regulators, which in some case will result in sanctions, and industrial action and general staff unrest. However, there are also many examples where the reputational damage of workplace allegations has been far greater than any legal liability. For example, compensation for discrimination in many jurisdictions can be quite low, but the reputational damage to the business and or senior leaders can lead to fatal losses of trust with customers and clients on the one hand, which is often reflected in loss of revenues in the short term, as well as with regulators and investors on the other, which is often reflected in demands about the board and the company structure in the long term. There are also going to be challenges with retaining existing employees and in securing new talent. Absolutely. And finally, then, before we draw this discussion to a close, Dave, I'm conscious that many of our clients are multinational employers. Have you got any thoughts or tips on how a global employer can ensure that their culture is consistent throughout the territories where they work, particularly where you might have potentially conflicts between company culture and what's expected by local cultures? Well, Anna, you and I know um, from the types of work that we do that the general approach in multinationals is for the company culture to be mandated. So normally the HQ, whatever that is in the world, will mandate both the minimum standards of behaviour and aspirational standards of behaviour. So a floor, if you like, and a soft ceiling. And then the idea is that local company culture must reinforce these standards but can exceed them. Typically, it's a job for the senior leadership who are in task with imparting the core values and the ethos of the business and all the workplace communications and interactions with staff. Now, they can do that in lots of ways. You know, we've we've got a style of leadership in our firm where we get short videos given to us by our CEO. And sometimes you see a sort of weekly newsletter go out from a CEO, the senior management. And of course, there are other ways to do it, including chilled out entertainer kind of ways, if that's your thing. That was my, my little office reference there, folks. However, this is a top-down method of imparting culture. While still relevant today, it's increasingly challenges in businesses with flatter transnational structures of the types that you're just more likely to come across. So sharing traditions and values and maintaining open communications across offices is the common way to unite values these days. I think perhaps the most important thing for preserving culture in a large organisation is ensuring that every member of staff knows the purpose of the business. Workplace cultures tend to be better when this is the case, in my experience. Yeah, absolutely agree. On that note, I'm conscious that we may be approaching the end of our listeners' coffee breaks, and I think we'll probably wrap up there. Thanks to you both, Dave and Lydia, for your very interesting insights into toxic cultures. As I mentioned earlier, this is the first in a mini-series of discussions broadly on the topic of sexual abuse and harassment in the workplace that we intend to hold over the next couple of weeks and months. 
Um, if you have any concerns that you'd like us to explore, then please do get in touch with your contact at HSF. Finally, thank you very much for listening. We hope that you enjoy the rest of your day and we look forward to sharing some further insights into this important topic in due course.